Well, good morning. What a week of celebration. Has it not been awesome so far? Woohoo! Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled, but I'm going to probably yell more. It's okay. Um, those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Jeremy, and, and it is my privilege to share with you today message of Easter. One of the things that we're doing here at Heights is that we have been going through the Bible in five years period of time. And how that looks is we are reading through the Word of God uh, together as a congregation six days out of the week. And then the message uh, from the, those readings come in part or in whole uh, here on Sunday mornings. And um, oh my goodness, it, it's been just a privilege. So this year we're in the Psalms. And we're breaking them up by category. And so this week we're doing Messianic Psalms. And I want to tell you something. I can't tell you how hard it is to figure out how to preach on Psalms when there's so much to preach. I feel like Paul just saying, just stay here till midnight and I'll keep preaching with you. Somebody can fall out of a window or something like that. Um, and it's, it's just so much here. We heard John over Good Friday, we heard Chris this morning, and uh, we get to bring Easter celebration to a close with these words, and I'm so excited uh, to share it with you. Uh, today's sermon is titled, The Holy One of God, and uh, I pray that by the end of this we'll understand the full meaning of what that, that means. Um, as we think of the resurrection story, as we think of the history that's involved with this, I, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 24. It's where we were this morning with Chris uh, out in uh, the grassy field. And I want to touch on some of these verses because it, it's really interesting. If we've read Luke 24, we've run across these words before as he spoke, as Jesus spoke to the two disciples who were traveling to the road of, to, through the road of, to Emmaus. And to his other disciples when he came and met with them in Jerusalem. And so as he's traveling on the road to Emmaus, kind of incognito, these two disciples are, are walking along and they're saying, don't you know what has happened here? And tried to explain, we, we saw this great man, Jesus, and we thought that he was the Messiah. And all that we, we had hoped for for Israel was in him, but he died days ago. And Jesus' response to them in verse 25 of chapter 24 says this, and he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When we go down to verse 44, as he's meeting with the disciples who are there and he appears before them. He says these words in verse 44, and he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay into the city until you've been clothed with power on high. 
How many of us have read these passages before and we've asked ourselves, man, I would have loved to have been a little fly on the wall for these teachings of Jesus, right? He's going to go through the prophets. He's going to go through Moses. And it says here when he's with his disciples and the Psalms. You know, this week we got to do a little bit of that. Just a little bit, right? If you read the Psalms for this week, it started this way. Monday you're reading Psalm chapter 8. And it says this, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you've exalted him and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And the writer of Hebrews, as he's making the case that Jesus is greater than the angels, pulls this very psalm out, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, the very verses I just read to you. And he says, and though we don't see it right now, everything under his feet, what we do see is Jesus, who is made for a little while a little lower than the angels, but now exalted with glory and honor. And then Tuesday, we open up the psalm to Psalm 110. Where it says in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in Jesus' ministry, as he was sharing who he was to the Pharisees who were challenging him at every turn, he turns around and he says, "Uh, let me ask you a question. Whose son is the Christ? And they said, well, it's David's. Well, then why does David Call him Lord. And he quotes that very verse. And unable to answer, they asked him no more questions. So we continue to read in Psalm 110, in verse 4, it says, You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2-7 that we read on Wednesday. You are my son. Today I've become your father. And in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 5, 10, this identification of Jesus being the one in the order of Melchizedek and the one who was called the Son of God by God himself. We find that Jesus is a sinless high priest in the order of Melchizedek and he's become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We move to Thursday and we read Psalm 118, 22 and 23 where it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Luke chapter 20, right after the parable of the tenants. And the parable of the tenants is where Jesus comes forward and he says there's a, there's a master and he's given this vineyard and he has tenants in this vineyard to take care of, uh, of it. And he sends servants to find out how things are going in the vineyard. And some of these servants the tenants beat and some of these servants the tenants kill. And he says, I'm going to go send my son. For surely they will respect my son. And they said, let us conspire against the son, because if we kill him, we can take the inheritance for ourselves. And so they kill the son, and he asks, what do you think the master will do? He says he will take that away from them and punish them and give the land, give that vineyard to somebody else. May it never be, because they recognize what Jesus was talking about. And then Jesus quotes this very psalm to them and says that the stone that the builders has rejected has become the capstone. Speaking of himself. 
The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then on Good Friday, we read Psalm 22. John did such a great job breaking all of that down. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we read in the scripture there that they pierced his hands and his feet. That they jeered at him. And they said, he saved others, why can't he save himself? If God loves him so much, and they cast lots for his clothes. All of that, I mean, you're reading Psalm 22. It's almost as if you're reading the Gospels. Penned by David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. We have been able to live out this last week some of that conversation that Jesus must have had with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, in that room, during those 40 days before he would ascend. Man, we've got to be that fly on the wall. It's really, really a cool thing. And one of the things that you need to know, and John did such a great job on Good Friday talking about how Jesus came to die, and that death that he gave to you and I, that perfect sacrifice is what frees us. It's the acceptable sacrifice of God for our sins so that we can be made holy. And yet, what I find ironic, we look in Luke, and whether it's the angel or it's Jesus himself. Three times in that chapter you say, we see the angel say, didn't he tell you? Or Jesus said, didn't I tell you all of this had to take place? That the Son of Man was going to be mocked and he was going to be mocked by the elders and the leaders and the Pharisees and the Gentiles and he was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful people and he was going to be crucified and killed and three days later he was going to rise. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at that because it's referenced all over the place. In the scriptures. So sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly. So let's look at some of these subtle references in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Jesus has just expelled the money changers for the first time from the temple. And he gets into the argument with the Pharisees as he's done so. In verse 18 says, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You know, one of the things that, that stands out to me when we read this passage is that it's when Jesus is in the upper room and he's talking to the 11 uh, disciples that are left, he says he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I think that at this point they're going, oh, this is what he meant. All the way back there when he would say three days later, do this. 
Because other people heard this. Remember, he made this charge in front of the leaders and the Pharisees who said, you know, destroy this temple and three days later I will, I will raise it. And it's used against him in his crucifixion trial. Matthew chapter 26 And we look at verses 59 through 61, and it says this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. And finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Mark's gospel talks about it even further, that it wasn't just at the trial, but it was even at the cross that they mentioned this. Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 15. Verses 29 and 30 say this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Or what about what we see in Matthew, in chapter 12? They start talking about a sign. Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He's been healing the sick. And then after all of these miracles that have happened, it says in verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Really? I've been healing the sick. I've been raising the dead. I've been, I've been doing all the, the things that should attest that I am who I say I am, and you still want more. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And where we have these kind of hidden references right here, the idea that his body is the temple that he's talking about, or that he's, he's really going to be like Jonah, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth as, as Jonah was in the, in the belly of a big fish. Jesus didn't always speak in code. If we look in Mark chapter 8, right after the confession Of who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Verse 31, he says, Then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And if that's not enough, we just turn one chapter later to chapter 9. And after he has been performing miracles and he's exercised some demons, we see in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30, it says they, they left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 
spoken so many parables. So when they hear this, like, this is another riddle we're supposed to try and figure out. Mark chapter 10, very next verse, after he speaks with the rich young man. Starting in verse 32, as they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is to establish something for you, that the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is inextricably tied to his resurrection. Because Jesus rarely only mentions his death without mentioning his resurrection. We see this over and over and over again. And yes, his death is needed for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus doesn't go one sentence later before he says, but three days later, I'm going to rise. Three days later, this is going to happen. As the Father has life in himself, he has given the Son the uh, ability to have life in himself. That he can lay down his life and take it up again. This is a command that I've received from my Father. We read in John chapter 5. And so it's not enough that Jesus dies for you and me. Because if he doesn't rise from the dead, he becomes a liar. And no longer worthy of our praise or our glory. The glory of God that was given to him because he could lay down his life and pick it up again. To ignore the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to ignore that Jesus promised it over and over and over and over again and said it is found in the scriptures that this was to be so. This was so understood even by his enemies that we read in Matthew 27. In verse 63... I'm going to start in verse 62. It says, The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. I want you to think about this for just a second. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are so worried about Jesus that they place a guard outside the tomb to make sure he stays dead. And I know they think it's all a hoax. They don't believe Jesus is going to rise. They're doing it because they think that the disciples will come and steal this body And then proclaim, oh, he's risen from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. But how crazy is that, right? Because they knew. They knew. That Jesus said over and over and over again, I'm going to be dead for three days and I'm going to rise again. You know what's so funny? 
all of his opponents got it. And all of the disciples missed it. It's right there in the scripture. They didn't understand what he said. So when Jesus is dead, they're in mourning. They're not thinking, let's go to the tomb. They're thinking, man, I really wish I understood what he meant by that, but he's gone now. But the guards that are there, oh my goodness, what a surprise. Angels show up, they fall down like they're dead. I think I would too. Stones rolled away, Jesus is raised from the dead. Oh my goodness. It didn't matter what they did. No power on earth was going to stop this from happening because this was the command that Jesus had received from his Father that we have been reading about, the fulfillment of all time. Most of these psalms this week we've been reading from David. They're a thousand years old from the time of Jesus being fulfilled precisely, exactly as he said it would. We're going to look forward now to Acts chapter 2. This is 50 days after the Passover. 10 days approximately after Jesus' ascension into heaven. The day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit. Remember, at the end of Luke, we, we just read how he said, you need to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, as they're praying, tongues of fire come upon them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they are clothed with this power that Jesus has promised. And they go out, and they begin to share about Christ to the world around them, and by a miracle of God, through the deciphering of tongues, everybody, no matter what nation they're from, because they're there to celebrate the Pentecost together, guess what? They hear them in their own language, and they say, oh, these guys are, these guys are drunk. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Realize how early they have to get up to get drunk? And as he begins to explain what it is that they're, they're uh, experiencing, he then starts to share the testimony of God in verse 22. Men of Israel, this is Peter, the scared one, the one who denied Jesus three times, is now standing boldly in the temple. And listen to these words. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. These are not words Peter could have said two weeks before. He had already promised Jesus, I will do everything. I will die with you. Couldn't do it. He denied him three times. And now after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, he stands bold in the temple courts and says, God's purpose and evil men that you empowered, you killed them. Couldn't have done that before. And we're witnesses of this, that he was raised from the dead. 
because the agony of death is impossible to hold him down. You know, we're told in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what caused death in this world is our sin, period. And it took somebody who had no sin in order to conquer it so that he could take sin on for us but not be corrupted by it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And this is why, this is why Peter says it was impossible for him to be held down by death. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then he goes on to quote David again in Psalm 16, the psalm that we read at the end of this week on Saturday. Verse 25, Acts chapter 2. And David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so we read in the Psalms, this passage of Scripture from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, where it says this, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known for me the paths of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. And he says, this isn't about David. David wrote this psalm. But David's dead. David's got a grave here that we can go and dig up his bones. He's been abandoned. He's decaying. He's all bones right now. But your Holy One, the Holy One of God, will never see decay. And we come as a witness that it is his descendant that God had promised through David that is an inherited all of these promises. And we have seen him and we testify that we have seen him raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this, that this Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. He's that Messiah you're looking for, and he's the Lord you've always served and didn't even know it. Man, that's some good news. And yet there comes a reckoning with it. See, we come together every Easter and we celebrate this, right? 
We come together every single Easter to hear this, this awesome story. But if it's not a true story, it means absolutely nothing. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ be not raised, you're still in your sins. And, and we're the most pitiful of all men. If in only in this life that we have hope in Christ, who really isn't raised from the dead. See, everything hinges on the reality of this resurrection. That it's got to be more than a story. It's not like I want to come to Easter so I can hear this good play or this good movie sequel. You know, Christ, Easter, the third, you know, whatever. It's about a real Jesus who is raised from the dead and has conquered sin and death forever. That all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But that means that there is something that that we have to come and reckon with. And we see in these next verses what happens. According to these people here, in verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They knew that they had something to do with Christ's death. Because that's the charge. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That the idea for you and me is to recognize that redemption is in Christ and in no other. And that first word is repent. Because if Jesus had to die for my sin to draw me close, then I have to understand what sin is. Not my definition of sin, and not the culture's definition of sin. God's definition of sin that is laid out in the word of God. I don't care if you think it's archaic, because if Jesus raised from the dead, it's true. And we have to come to recognize that his death on the cross to reconcile us to God comes at the price of recognizing that I'm a sinner. Not some, it's not some term that's just nebulous so I can say I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. I have lusted after women with my eyes. I have lied to people with my lips. I have taken on things and stole things from others that were not my own. I have treated the Lord's name with contempt in vain. I have not honored God with my life and not put him first. And I have idols in my life. I have to remember all of these things that God has set forth. I find myself a lawbreaker worthy of the penalty that Jesus has sacrificed himself on the cross and provides for you and me redemption through belief in his resurrection. But that means everything he said was true concerning the sin in my life and the price that needed to be paid. And a repenting means I'm turning away from it. It's the recognition that because I see the risen Savior and I see the risen Christ and I know that that's the truth in Christ Jesus, my only response, my only right response, if this is true, is to turn away from those things, to repent, to say, I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to follow and live and serve and wonderfully proclaim the name of Jesus to all around me. If we go back to what Jesus said 
to the disciples in the upper room. Luke 24, 46 through 49, he said, he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed from power on high. That you and I have the opportunity to be drawn close to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins that put him on the cross. This is a glorious day. But it's only a glorious day if it's real. And if it's real, it should have a profound impact on our life. John chapter 16. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, this is after the Last Supper, he begins to share with them the reality of what they're about to experience. It's what you and I experience this day. And Jesus says in John 16, verses 20 through 23, he says this, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child is pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I'll see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. There's going to come a day, Jesus says, soon, where your grief will be turned to joy, and that joy will never be taken away again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a source of that joy. He has died to death, so death can no longer master anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. We have a hope, we have a future, we have a home that he's preparing for us in heaven. We know that all of these things are true, and they're true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's our joy, it's why we meet together today, to celebrate that joy. Do we really believe that death has been defeated? Do we really believe that death has been defeated? How would that change our perspective? See, I believe honestly, wholeheartedly, and there's no judgment in this. I'm being very honest, though. This last year, we've been terrorized by death. The prospect of death has made us forget who conquered it. And we have lived to a certain extent, all of us, as people not really believing that Jesus has conquered it. This is a celebration. He is risen. Death has been defeated forever. 
those people we see die, we know that's a temporary state because to be gone with the body is to be present with the Lord, to be with him forevermore. And someday he will come back with all the ones that he's taken and those bodies will be lifted from the grave and their spirits and their bodies will be resurrected anew like Christ's body is now, the firstborn of the dead. And we will receive an imperishable body just as he has. Do you believe this, church? Do you really believe this? Is this not something to be excited about and joyful for? What can man do for me? What can he do to me, right? Oh, we have a boldness that we are called to proclaim. To share with the world that doesn't want to hear about Christ and doesn't want to hear about their sin and doesn't want to hear about the solution that Christ has. You know, Christ wants to see every single person come to him. First Timothy chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. But as Paul is talking about people to pray for, that pray for leaders and rulers, and he says it's God's desire for all men to be saved. Peter echoes the same thing where he says, God is not slow concerning his promises. Some men consider slackness and slowness, but he's patient toward us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He sent Jesus so that no one would perish, so that every single person would have the opportunity to choose him, to repent of their sin, and choose eternal life, and have the fullness of joy that could never be taken away, because this life is not the end. Amen. Do you believe it? Because it's only in the power of the Spirit and the conviction that that is true that you will share that good news with others who need to hear it. And that is what Easter is all about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope above all hope, the conquering of death and sin so that my name could be written in the Lamb's book of life so that your name could be written in the Lamb's book of life. And all you need to do is recognize that he's Lord and you're not. Would you stand with me? Where are you this Easter? Is this just a neat service that you've come to because it's a habit an American habit that we go to church on Easter and Christmas? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he conquered sin and death? Do you believe that he stepped out of that grave and no power on earth or in hell could have stopped him from doing it because he's Lord of all? King of kings, Lord of lords, and someday, one day, as he's promised you and me, he's coming back so that we will be where he is and no one will take away our joy. It's the only reason a coward like Peter who couldn't even stand before a slave girl would stand at the end of his life saying, I'm not worthy, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy of it. That's what it meant for him. You can't do that unless you believe it's real. And we as Christians need to start believing that it's real so that the world can see the power of God through your life, through my life, and what Jesus has done and see the life that he wants us to live here full of abundance 
and the promise of life that we have yet to look forward to with him in eternity in heaven. If you don't know that, today is a great day. Today is a great day for you to know that. Quell your doubts. Ask your hard questions. Don't walk away without knowing that this historical event really happened. Jesus is who he said he is. He's going to do what he said he has already done, and he's coming back for you and me so our joy can be complete to be with him forevermore. You can have that today. I'm going to pray with us. I want us to celebrate, and I want us to live as if it's true. How would it change? How would it change the way you would live today? Christian, those of you called by his name, maybe, maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you need to remember again. Those of you who are not called by his name, maybe you need to know for the first time. Our elders will be up front to pray with anybody. I'll be up here too. would love to talk with any of you. Today is a day of celebration. Christ has conquered the grave. He has risen. God, thank you. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection that's inextricably tied to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins to prove yourself true in everything, that you are both Lord and Christ. You are both the Messiah who would come to deliver us from ourselves and the Lord who conquered sin and death and was raised by your own glorious power, by the command of your Father, that we might see your glorious body and have the hope that someday, one day, you're coming back for us. And until then, you want us to live for you. Forgive us, O God. It's our sin that puts you there. Forgive us for how we have fallen short. Help us to look, to serve, to live for you. For you're worthy. You're King of kings. You're Lord of lords. And there is no one like you. Our grief has been turned to joy. And no one, no one can take it away. No matter what happens here on earth. We praise you for that. And the confidence that we have in Jesus. And it's in his glorious insurmountably amazing name that we praise. Amen. Amen. Amen.